Hello. The sermon scripture this morning is Mark eleven twenty seven through twelve twelve. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say, from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say, from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you, Donna. Good morning. My name is Matt. I am one of the pastors here, and it is great to be with you on this 4th of July weekend, which has clearly had its toll on our people this weekend. I didn't realize that there was a natural 4th of July kind of hangover that happened. Uh, the 14th of July, of course, is Bastille Day that I'm sure you'll all be celebrating with me. Um, Vive la France, indeed. Well, how many of you have um, read Lord of the Rings? Actually read the whole series. Come on, hands up. Let me see. Read the whole series. Okay. How many of you, keep your hands up. How many of you have watched the movies, Lord of the Rings movies? Come on. You've watched the movies. All right. So for the three of you who have neither seen nor read the movies, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien wrote um, this incredible series. And the third book of the series is called Return of the King. And um, in this book, we get to meet a, a character that we hadn't met yet. His name is Denethor. And Denethor is, is the lord and the steward of, of Gondor. His family's been ruling there as lords and steward over this place for, for generations now as they, as they wait for the arrival of the king, the, the severed line of the king that has not been reestablished for, for centuries. Now, Aragorn... That we've met, of course, throughout the course of the books slash movies, is the rightful king. And he is at this moment, in the moment in the book, he's on his way to bring not only the kingdom back, but he's also bringing rescue with him for the battle that's afoot. And yet, 
Denethor, who's slowly been degrading internally and slowly moved by evil, is becoming more and more akin to deciding life for himself. And so we have this moment where he describes, where Denethor finds himself describing, this is kind of how it is. And he says, yeah, 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 the king comes back, I understand that. But really, his, some of his motives start showing up. It says here, as he's talking to Gandalf, he says, yet the lord of Gondor, which is himself, is not to be made the tool of other men's purposes, however worthy. And to him, there is no purpose higher in the world as it now stands than the good of Gondor. And the rule of Gondor, my lord, is mine and no other man's unless the king should come again. Well, this is somewhat of a declaration, but his true thoughts become really, really apparent when Things get very dicey. He starts losing his mind and starts going crazy when he realizes that Gondor is going to fall. The besieging army is going to take it. And he takes his only son, his heir, and tries to burn him alive because he's wounded. He's losing his mind and Gandalf rescues the son from being burned alive. And he confronts uh, Denethor and, and Denethor says this to him, revealing what's really in his heart. He says, so with the left hand thou wouldst use me for a little while as a shield against Mordor, and with the right hand bring up Aragorn, this ranger of the north, to supplant me. But I say to thee, Gandalf, I will not be thy fool. I am steward of the house of Anarion. I will not step down to be the dotart chamberlain of an upstart. That's one of your lines for folks that work with you. Even when his claim, even where his claim proved to me, still he comes but from a line of his seal door. I will not bow to such a one. Lost, last of a ragged house, long bereft of lordship and dignity. And then Gandalf says, what then would you have if your will could have its way? And listen to what he says. I would have things as they were all the days of my life, answered Denethor. And in the days of my long fathers before me, for to be the lord of this city in peace and leave my chair to a son after me who would be his own master and no wizard's pupil. But if doom denies this to me, then I will have not, neither life diminished, love nor love halved, nor honor abated. And then Gandalf, almost in despair, responds, To me, it would not seem that a steward who faithfully surrenders his charge is diminished in love or in honor. But that's not how Denethor sees it. At this moment, he finds himself in such despair that he takes his own life and misses out on the redemption and the renewal that's about to come at the hands of the rightful king. And in this morning's passage, we have a group of people. We have the Sanhedrin, this, these rulers of, the, uh, the rulers of Israel, these priests and elders, these men who are under the auspices of the Roman government, ruling over Israel, particularly in religious matters, but really controlling the life and, and culture of Jerusalem and Israel. They are stewards of the house of Israel. One of their primary roles was to recognize the king when he came and to take their authority and submit it under his. The Sanhedrin, this group of leaders and elders, are Denethor. Denethor is the Sanhedrin. 
And here comes this upstart, this Jesus, this ranger from the north, from Galilee. And he comes, and from the beginning in Mark chapter 1, he causes offense on, to his opponents at every single turn. He exhibits this sovereign freedom and this commanding authority. He does so when he's casting out demons. He does so very clearly as he teaches. He teaches with this power and authority that no one, no one seems to understand how that happens. He, he, he calms storms and he finds himself healing people by the words of his mouth. And then he declares, in what seems wild, that he declares a man sins to be forgiven. But now, on this week of Passover, where everyone is in town, he starts coming in, this upstart, comes into Jerusalem in some kind of a form of a royal procession on a cult with, with a claim and worship around him. And then he goes straight into the temple a couple days later and starts clearing out the temple, which we saw last week. Who is this guy? Who does he think he is? By what authority is he doing this? And it's in this temple court, at the very center of religious life, the seat of power that this most authoritative body of elders and leaders, the Sanhedrin, approaches Jesus on force and demands for him to declare himself. And they say in verse 28, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Well, this morning, as we look through this passage, we're going to see three things. First, we're going to see that Jesus declares his authority over everything. He declares his authority over everything. Secondly, that Jesus' authority threatens everybody. And third, that Jesus' authority offers freedom to everyone. So Jesus declares his authority over everything. This group comes to Jesus and starts questioning him, right? He's been doing these things, and they, they start questioning him, and what does he do? He questions them back. The question becomes the questioner. They ask him to declare himself, and he looks at them and says, no, you declare yourselves. See, unlike anyone else, which, of course, the rabbinic style of asking questions from a question is very normal, but not to the ruling body of the country. Unless, unless you don't see yourself as being under this ruling body that everyone else understands, but over it. Jesus declares his authority over them by becoming the questioner of those who question. But he also finds himself aligning himself with John the Baptist. Now you may seem like, okay, so what? But John the Baptist, and the question that he asked him, is John the Baptist from heaven or, or was his message from man, is pivotal. Because everyone held John to be a prophet, as the scripture said. And Jesus says, I'm aligned with John because John declared what is true about me. Now, John's message was one of repentance for Israel, and that was huge. But his primary role as a prophet was to prepare Israel for the Messiah, was to prepare his people for the king who was coming again for the return of the king. And, and on that very special day when Jesus entered the water back in, in at the beginning of Mark, we saw Jesus enter the water. And in that baptism, the Holy Spirit comes down and the voice of the Father, this is my beloved son 
you are my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. And the power of God to exercise exousia, power out and authority over all things comes to Jesus in that moment. And so when Jesus says, are you agreeing that John was from heaven or was he from man? He's aligning himself saying, because if John was from heaven, then I'm from heaven. And of course, they're unwilling to answer. I am from heaven, Jesus says. He declares his authority by saying, I, like John, have come not just with a message from heaven. I am the man of heaven come to earth. But then as you look at this parable that he speaks, which is fascinating. I mean, it's, it's an amazing story. Jesus declares himself as all authority by saying, listen, I'm the owner of the vineyard. I am the owner. You guys are the tenants. It belongs to me. Jesus isn't standing in their temple. They are standing in his temple. They think this is the seat of all their authority. This is the very place in which the one who has all authority has come. The Holy of Holy is not behind the curtain. It's standing right in front of them. He owns the vineyard. It's his. But he also declares it by, well, calling himself the cornerstone. Verse 10 says, have you not read this scripture, Jesus says to them? The stone that the builders, which is you, Sanhedrin, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, most of us aren't builders here. So this is our cornerstone, so we can understand what a cornerstone is. It is not a wooden crate. But if this was a stone, you would be really impressed that I'm standing here. But this is how it works. The cornerstone was the strongest and also the most aligned and most pivotally aligned stone in all building construction. It's the one that goes down first. It's the most powerful one. Everything aligns to it. So as the stone goes down, all future lines for all building structure are going to come to this particular stone. If the stone is weak, it gets crushed. If the stone is askew, the alignment is off. Jesus says, I am the cornerstone. I have come all things align according to me. What he's doing, he's looking at them and saying, your life, life itself and your lives must align to me. He declares himself the cornerstone. I am the thing that you build your life around. I am what you align with, Jesus says. So from the very beginning, that's something talking about the very beginning of Mark and the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus has been declaring. He's been speaking for God as God. He's been declaring that he has authority, that he has authority over everything, and so it's not, you, you cannot with integrity read the, read the Gospels, and certainly you can't read Mark, and say that Jesus was just this good teacher who got swept up into some kind of misunderstood dynamic. He never claimed to be Messiah. He never claimed to be God when he clearly is saying, I am the thing. I am the cornerstone. I am from heaven. It's my vineyard. All of this is mine. But Jesus' authority threatens everyone. It threatens everyone. If Jesus is from heaven, 
then he commands the ultimate authority of God over your lives. If Jesus is the owner of the vineyard, then all that you have and all that you do is his. If Jesus is the cornerstone, then we must all align our whole lives according to him and his purposes. And this threatens everyone. Oh, no doubt it threatened the Sanhedrin on that day, but it threatens every single one of us sitting here, myself included. See, because first, Jesus' authority, it threatens our foundation. It threatens our foundation because, and you see it clearly with the Sanhedrin, right? Jesus has come in, and by describing them as tenants who are willing to kill the son, what he's describing is people who see someone as having a rivalry to what is already theirs or what they must have. He's assaulting the foundations of their power, of their position. They have a prominence and a prestige. They, they have a place in the culture that they will not let go. They will not release. And when Jesus comes and says that he has claim over the temple, that he has claim over Israel, it's not lost on them. He takes on their authority and their acclaim. You see the acclaim piece, right? As soon as the prospect of them having to denounce Jesus or even speak out loud about John the Baptist, who they did not hold to be this prophet, they won't. They're afraid of the people. You see, their cornerstone is the applause of the people, the acclaim of the people. The people must be with them and endorse them, and that's the cornerstone. And Jesus is coming in, and he is a threat to that stone. And, of course, he's saying, your power is to be submitted to me. It must come under me, and, and their power is their absolute identity, and it will not be submitted. The fact that Jesus was crucified and judged by a council made up of three different parties, all of which didn't really get along really well. They could just agree on the fact that they were not going to lose their power to him. That they could agree on. That was their cornerstone. Jesus threatens our foundation, and the question for you today is, what's the cornerstone? What's your cornerstone? What do you... What are you building your life around? What are you aligning your world around? Now, I'm not just talking in general, some kind of a thing. This week, what did you align your world around? What was the most important thing? What are you, if I took a look at your money, at the conversations you're having, how you're spending your time and energy, what would it declare about what the foundation, the thing that all things hold from is or are? I mean, probably multiple things. You see, we're... We're all threatened by Jesus. He's coming in just like he did with the rich young ruler a few weeks ago when he came in, the rich young ruler, and, and Jesus puts his finger on the thing. Do you know what he was doing? He was walking over to the base of his building and going like, this is your cornerstone. This is, this is your cornerstone, and it, and it has to go and be replaced by me. And by the way, if that happens, probably the building that you've been building on is going to collapse and there's going to have to be a reconstruction process, progress, a process with me as the beginning stone. And most of us just don't want to do that. We, we built a system and a structure by which our entire world system works. And so we're not going to come over and pull that stone out. And so we just maybe have a little cornerstone over here. That's, that's the Jesus cornerstone. And we build like a little, 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 little building. And then we have like the real building or the real buildings. And we hold them behind a curtain, except on Sunday, you know, especially on Sundays, you just pull the curtain. And it's like, yeah, cornerstone. But Jesus is saying, no, there, there is one building. Everything aligns on me. Everything aligns to me. 
And that threatens us. It threatens who we are. There was an article um, by a woman who's connected to a, a bunch of the uh, beauty industry uh, in New York City, and, and she talked about how all her friends as they're aging, because if your cornerstone's beauty and youth, which, by the way, is right one of the altars that our culture bows to, she was saying, what's so funny is I'm realizing all my friends are starting to wear, um, like, turtlenecks or scarves. And, um, and she said this. She says, our faces lie. Oh, we can get them cut and puffed up or whatever, but our faces lie. But our necks, necks tell the truth. Now, some of you understand that better than others. Some of you will find out what that means one day. But if beauty is your cornerstone... And I don't know about you, but like every time I see a, a new movie come out and I'm like, I remember that actress, but she didn't look like that before. Candidly, I remember that actor and he didn't look like that before. He's all swole. What's happened? You can't let go of the cornerstone. Anything other than Christ as your cornerstone will crush you because there will be someone younger, someone prettier, someone better. There will be a, a better spouse than the spouse you have. There will be a better relationship. There will be better kids or there will be moms who seem to pull it off better than you're able to pull it off or at least look like they're pulling it off better than you're pulling it off. And it will crush you if it's not Jesus. It's not made to sustain the weight like he is. So what are you building your life around? Can you never be wrong? Because you, be, you have to be right. All of life aligns only then. Jesus' invitation in this moment, and it's an invitation. I think one of the things that was phenomenal as working through this and then talking with the preaching team about, you understand, they're coming the Sanhedrin's coming to him to assault him, right? They're trying to take him on. They're not interested in really what he has to say or who he really is. And Jesus gives them an opportunity. They've been against him the whole time, and Jesus still invites. He still, he still invites them. What he invites them to is humble submission. But they won't give it up. They won't get up what they have, and frankly, some of us are not willing to give up what we have to replace it with him. So Jesus' authority threatens our foundations, no doubt about it, but it, frankly, it, it threatens our freedoms. It threatens our, our freedoms to decide for ourselves. Now, the current reality, what, what, what's in the air is that we think humanity is defined by our freedom. That's, that's the cultural air that we live in. Humanity, to be human, is to be fully free. That we should be able to customize our lifestyle, to, to maximize our happiness, as long as, of course, in a very humble way, it doesn't affect anyone else in too much of a negative way. So I should be able to buy what I want when I want. I should be able to sleep with who I want when I want. I, I should be able to work at whatever job as long as I want as faithfully as I want. I should be able to support this cause that I want and not the causes I, I don't. To be free is to be out from under any authoritative structure. And I should be free because I deserve it by right. 
by birth, by nation. But the reality is that you, you cannot be free. You cannot uncouple freedom from submission. You can't. When Jesus says, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free, what he's doing is he's drawing a box. He's saying there's a line that has to be followed. You want to be free? It has to be true. If it's not true, you can't really be free. You can't uncouple those, those two things. Like we said last week in John 15 when Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. He meant that. He says, he says I'm the only thing that's actually going to produce life in you and, and for you cannot uncouple freedom from submission, submission to very clear parameters and rules. And I remember hearing this in a sermon about a, a little, um, like a three-year-old who was in the room with the goldfish and the mom left for two minutes, a minute, good mom, one minute, and came back and the goldfish was on the ground. And the three-year-old said, I wanted to set it free. Now, if he was a three-year-old philosopher, so he would have said, I wanted to, to free it from the authoritarian confines of the fishbowl. That's freedom without truth. That's freedom without authority. It doesn't work. But make no mistake, authority is a really hard thing to swallow for all of us. For everyone, especially within this current deconstructionist culture, the claims, the claims that Jesus is the only way, well, the claims by Jesus that he's the only way, and of course the claims of Christianity that he is the only way, are, they're anathema to this cultural moment. It used to be, let's just all get along, and now it's not an option so much anymore. You cannot say he's the only way, and yet he... He says he is, which Abdu Murray describes this time as a time when confusion is a virtue and clarity is a sin. We live in a time where confusion is a virtue. If you can't figure anything out, it's okay. That's virtuous. But if you have clarity, that's sin. And Jesus in this passage, you can't make him a sweet, nice teacher or rabbi. It's exactly what Jesus is declaring. Clarity and authority are with me. To the claim that um, there is only one way, uh, author David Gooding writes this, I think, fascinating thing. If you, and if you don't know Jesus well or if you're kind of still trying to pursue figuring out what it means to follow Jesus, I think this is, this is really fascinating. He says, of all the founders of religion, Christ is the only one who will come alongside us, claim to be our creator incarnate, come to deal with the problem of the guilt of our sin by means of his sacrifice on the cross so that we can receive forgiveness and peace with God. To ask why we must think that Christ is the only way to God is to miss the point completely. For Christ does not, in that sense, compete with anyone for the simple reason that no one else claims to deal with this foundational problem. He is the only one in the running. How can it be narrow-minded, therefore, or arrogant to accept from Christ what no one else offers? That's what it means to follow Jesus. You're accepting from him what only he offers. 
You're not competing with anything else. Loved ones, we don't get to vote Jesus into office. He declares himself as the one on the throne. He's the cornerstone. He's the owner of the vineyard. That's not in question, even when and as we question it. So Jesus' authority threatens our freedom to decide, but Jesus in this passage threatens our, our, our authority. Sorry, Jesus' authority threatens our freedom not to decide. You see what happens? The questions of the Pharisees reveal their assumptions. Their questions reveal their assumptions. What Jesus is doing in his question back to them, he is trying to show them. He's opening them up to the implications of what they're really asking. But they're not after the truth. They're after an opportunity to disregard Jesus. And it's not that they don't have his, their suspicions about who Jesus might be. They're not blind. The reports have been across all of Galilee. Thousands of people have followed him. He's fed thousands of people with fish. Something is going on. So they're not fundamentally disoriented all the way out. They, something's go, he is somebody. They have their suspicions. And here's the amazing thing. They could learn more if they were willing to enter into an honest dialogue with him about who he is. They're not unable to know. This is what's amazing about this moment. They're not unable to know. They're unwilling to know. And that's probably the most tragic moment in the story. As the rulers unfold and leave Jesus And the rule applies here that to those unwilling to commit themselves, Jesus refuses to commit himself. To those unwilling to commit themselves, Edward says, Jesus refuses to commit himself. It's as though, and you see this in verse 33, when he says, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. It's just this, like, the bottom falls out. Do you feel it? Maybe maybe you're looking at the Sanhedrin going like, yeah, those guys are rascals. I don't like them. They're a problem. And so, good, you know what? Good riddance for him. But no, like Jesus is saying, your will be done. I am here. You want to actually have a conversation? I'm here. But, but if you won't, then your will be done. Sad and tragic, but it's sobering. And, and if you're here today and and you're still in conversation and dialogue about God or with Jesus, about who he is and about what this faith might mean, my invitation to you is is stay in the fight. Stay in the conversation with him. Don't, verse 12 is maybe the culmination of the tragedy when he says, so they left him and went away. And this is what I want to share with you is, is this, and this is for, for, for everyone, but particularly if you're trying to chase after what is this Jesus and what does this God mean, is what God says in Jeremiah 29 to you today. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. So, so don't, don't quit if you're struggling with your faith right now, some of the things, if the cornerstone stuff, if, if maybe the cornerstone got kicked out from under your building and everything has collapsed and you're going like, I don't know what cornerstone I want. I'm not sure I want it to be God. You'll seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. But you don't get not to decide. They say, you know what? There's no good answer here. So we're going to answer with, I don't know. And I don't know doesn't work. 
Not to decide is to decide. Not to make a choice is to make a choice. And I think for most of us, we've come to the place with so many choices that maybe if we just don't choose things, they'll just pass us by. Anyone have decision fatigue? But that doesn't work with the most important questions. You can't just let them go by. The ones that are gnawing at your heart, the things that Jesus is knocking on your door about, you can't let them go by. The authority of Jesus, it threatens our, our ability not to decide. What that means for those of you who are Christians here is that you, you, you don't get to be an ambivalent Christian. There's no such thing as cultural Christianity. Well, you don't have to land on anything. You don't have to necessarily stand for anything. And maybe it's primarily because you're worried about what other people are going to think about you or what they're going to perceive from you. And so you're going to have to risk your reputation if Jesus is the cornerstone. Or maybe it's, maybe it's deeper than that. Maybe, maybe, if, maybe if he's the cornerstone, if he's the owner, if he really does have that kind of authority, it means that you'd actually have to live your life differently than you are. That you'd have to give up certain ways of orienting your life to make your life work and, and reorient around God and, and choose to plow your life into the vineyard that he's called you into. And that's the choice. The invitation of God is to say, to choose to freely submit to the king. To freely submit to the king as he redefines for you what the good life is. And in this passage, it seems clear that Jesus redefines the good life as a life of surrender to his authority, to his ownership of all that you have and all that you are. That's the good life. I won't sell super well on Facebook necessarily, but, but that is the good life. The good life is therefore a life of response, an ongoing, daily, repeated process of, of freely, freely putting ourselves, that means everything, who we are, our jobs, our work, our people, our friends, putting all of those things under, under him, under his rule, under his direction, under his purposes, and under his commands. This kind of living, this kind of good life isn't a destination. It's a, it's a process. It's, it's a radically ordinary life of humble, free, faith-filled obedience to what God says, to how he's aligned both the world and your world. It's aligning and saying, you say this, I will obey. I will follow the lines that you have drawn And the reason is, is because Jesus' authority offers freedom for everyone. This is an amazing story. What, what kind of authority does Jesus have? Absolute authority? Yes. But he also has sacrificial authority. I don't know if you've ever thought about that before. Jesus has all authority over storms and clearly over the people of Israel and over all things, but... He has sacrificial authority. Look at the characters in, in this parable. Do you ever wonder if the, the father, the, the owner, is a little bit out of his mind? I mean, he seems either to be 
like just wildly irresponsible, maybe heartless or just out of his mind? Why would you send your son after time and time again your servants have been shamed, beaten, or killed? But he's not heartless. This father, as we now see, of a son, it says that he has a beloved son, an only son. And it just it harkens back to the moment of the of the baptism, you are my beloved son, the transfiguration, this is my beloved son. He's not heartless, and he's not reckless either. He's purposeful. He's choosing to do this on purpose. And as Pastor David Bisgrove says, the father and the son from all eternity were co-conspirators in a plan of redemptive grace. The Father and the Son from all eternities were co-conspirators in a plan of redemptive grace. That's the gospel. And I want you to see in this, in this parable, it's very easy to look and think of like, oh, that's right, and he comes in and he kicks out the tenants. And... But from all eternity, from the moment that all these servants keep coming back to some of them not coming back and just reports, the Father and the Son are saying, here are these rebellious tenants. This is our property we have all rights to it, and yet their co-conspiracy is not to come and to kick them out. Instead, the son, uh, the will, with the will of the father, willingly goes and says, I will not come and remove them. I will come and allow myself to be thrown over the wall. It's sacrificial authority. And you see it nowhere clearer than in John 10 when Jesus says this. This is amazing, just in John 10, Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me. You want to know why I'm beloved? This is one of the reasons the Father loves me. Because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I have authority. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. You ever think about authority as something that you give away by how? This is exactly what the gospel is. The right of the owner was to come in and destroy them all immediately. After the first servant didn't come back with what belonged to him rightly, and yet the story of the gospel is a God who sends a son. A God who sends a son with sacrificial authority, declaring that he has absolute and ultimate authority over all things, that he may draw those in. Which is why in verse 11 it says, this is the Lord's doing. This wasn't an accident. Jesus didn't get thwarted on his mission. And it is marvelous in our sight. On that dark day in Golgotha, it was not marvelous in the sight of the Lord. It was pain stricken on his face. But it is marvelous in our sight. That's why we, we sang the songs we sang at the beginning of the service. <laughs> It's marvelous. The cross is this marvelous thing. And it's marvelous to us because we're, we're the tenants. Justice would have thrown us out. But when we see him being thrown out, it shows us that we're actually becoming more than tenants. We're becoming sons and daughters. You see, Jesus came not just so that he'd be able to get some of the produce, but to be able to give us an opportunity to become sons and daughters. 
heirs of the vineyard with him, co-heirs with Christ. It's ridiculous, or seems ridiculous, unless he's living out of sacrificial authority. So is Christ your cornerstone? In, in what ways is Christ your cornerstone? In what ways are other things your cornerstone? It must deal with his authority to say, no, no, you belong to me. All things belong to me, your very life. I have ransomed you so that you may plow your life into the vineyard that I've now purchased for you as co-heir. You get to be co-conspirators with him in the fruitfulness of the vineyard. Think about that. Co-conspirators now with God, with the Trinity, and being fruitful in the vineyard that is his. How do we, how do we remain there? How do we not forget the cornerstone? How do we not build things around it and forget it exists? How do we not see the vineyard as our vineyard, as mine? We have to see Jesus. After Denethor dies at the end there, he dies as the city looks like it's about to fall to the enemies. But as I said, Aragorn comes in the next day, the king re-enters, and he frees the city. But Faramir, who's whose Denethor's son has been deeply wounded, looks like a death blow, and of course he almost got burned alive. But in one of the final scenes there, Aragorn meets this new steward of Gondor, who with his dad's, death, dad's, dad's passing has now become the steward of Gondor. And he meets Aragorn, and Aragorn heals him from his deadly wound using a treatment that is only known to the king's line. And then he calls Faramir by his name, and he brings him back from the brink of death. And here's how Faramir responds as the steward. It said, suddenly Faramir stirred and he opened his eyes and he looked on Aragorn who bent over him and a light of knowledge and love was kindled in his eyes and he spoke softly, my Lord, you called me, I come. What? Does the king command? Aragorn responds, Walk no more in shadows, but awake. You are weary, rest a while and take food and be ready when I return. I will, Lord, said Faramir, for who would lie idle when the king has returned? Loved ones, the rightful king has come. And he's used a treatment known only to the kingly line, a co-conspiracy of the father and the son who is his beloved to bring back, not from the brink of death, but from ultimate death, certain death, all of those who have rejected him as sovereign over their vineyard, all of them who have rejected him as Lord. By being killed, in our place on a cross outside the vineyard. And when we see Jesus, the one who has all authority, bent over on the cross for us, we stop being threatened by him. We stop being threatened by what he has for us, what he desires for our life, and instead we, we joined Faramir like Faramir, a light of knowledge and love is kindled in our eyes. It must be kindled in our eyes. And we respond, my Lord, you called me, I come. What does the king command?
This is how Jesus becomes marvelous in our eyes. And loved ones, he must be marvelous in our eyes or he will never be our cornerstone. He must be marvelous in our eyes or he will never be the one who we allow to be our, our owner of the very vineyard that he wants to use for his good. So as we come to this table today, this meal of remembrance, the invitation of this table is for you to surrender once again to the cornerstone and to, by his grace, ask him that he would take your life and that he would plow it into the very vineyard that he's given all of us to live in and remind us time and time again that it must be him and that we get the joy as sons and daughters to participate with him as co-laborers in his vineyard. That's what this meal is. Let's pray. Father, thank you. You are sacrificially authoritative. Everything belongs to you. You've declared it. You've shown it. You've made it. And yet in your mercy and your goodness and your faithfulness, you've called us. You, you, you've allowed those of us who are, all of us who are unfit, unworthy, rebellious tenants to become sons and daughters through your choice for us. And so we want to see you as our, as our rescuer and as our king. We want to bend our knees before you as our sovereign. And so, Lord, would you, by your mercy, help us to see, help us to know that we would not be threatened by you, but instead that we would run to you in participating in the work that you have for us. We pray this, pray this in Christ, our Savior. Amen. Well, if you belong to Jesus, this is your meal, your opportunity to remember and in a very clear way submit yourself once again under the mighty hand of God that he may lift you up. Come forward and receive the elements.